Um, today we're doing our, our, our continuing our questions worth asking, and today's question is um, why is there suffering? This is it's come up a lot. This this, this theme has come up a lot. It's, you, there's a lot of different questions, but it's basically why is there suffering? Why would God allow horrendous things to happen? Why um, do bad things happen to good people? So, um, we're going to be here for about 12 hours. <laughs> uh, the restrooms are right out here. If you need to go to the bathroom, a few donuts left if you want a snack. Uh, huge books have been written on this topic. And so, uh, we're going to do an overview of this as best I can in about 20 or 25 minutes. Um, because we need it. This is basically the number one question. Um, and it got me thinking about a story when a few years ago some friends and I were in a Bible study together and we felt led, as the Holy Spirit does, to go serve the poor. That's typically how the Spirit of Jesus works. He drives you toward um, the, the outcast and, the, and you know, the, you know, all of that. He drives you in, in compassion and mercy and that's what happened and we felt led to go serve the poor in downtown Winston, my hometown. Right? Some Winston people in here. Come on. I know you're out there. Uh, and so we went to a homeless shelter downtown, and we, get, we would buy donuts every Monday night and give them out and ha- have a Bible study. And so there would be, you know, 15, 20, 30 guys sometimes would come, and there's just, you know, you didn't have to if you wanted to. And a lot of those guys knew their Bibles really well. Um, they would, they would, they're very honest in a homeless shelter. They do not hold back. Um, and, like, you could be up giving a lesson, and they just stand up and be like, no, I have a problem with what you just said, you know. And, um, that happened one night when I was, we were talking about the, the forgiveness of God, the mercy, and the love of God. And this guy stood up, and he had a thick, you know, Brooklyn, sort of New York uh, accent. He said, hey, I was at 9-11. I was there when the towers fell. Don't tell me that God loves those guys as much as he loves me. Why would God allow that to happen? Now, there was no class in seminary that prepared me for that moment. Maybe my improv class in college. And I said, well, friend, you're assuming that God's going to let those guys off the hook, for one. They're going to reap what they have sown. Secondly, they flew those planes. God didn't do that. Now, that's a short answer. Now, when this guy stood up and said that, he's coming from a place of raw honesty, and I respect that, of authenticity. He's really saying, what you're telling me is that it doesn't compute. On one hand, God is good, and he's sovereign, and he's holy, and he's powerful. And yet, on the other, stuff like 9-11 happens. It doesn't make sense to me, so I'm going to yell at you in your face. And I get that. I feel that way almost every day, and you probably do too. These things, they coexist, but it doesn't make sense. But one thing I also said to him was, pulling God out of that conversation actually makes it even harder. Because when you, when you, when you want to get God out of the suffering dialogue, it's even more hopeless. It's all death and no resurrection. And so the argument, I'm going to talk about this generally real, real quick, and then I'll have a few points to make. The argument against God, really, one of the main ones is this, is that Christians, theists, believers, um, we hold three suppositions, presuppositions, that God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil exists. And the argument against God would go, if, if, God, is, if God is not all-good or all-powerful, if evil does exist, therefore God is not real 
or God's not good. Now, there's a Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. If you've never heard of him, he's brilliant. I recommend you read some of his uh, stuff. I'm going to use him a little bit here. His argument against that is saying that God desires to love human beings and human beings to love him. That's ultimately his ultimate goal. And so to have that loving fellowship, God has to give people the freedom of choice. They cannot be coerced. He does not want them to be robots. So he's really saying free will is the answer to your question. You know, C.S. Lewis touched on this in Mere Christianity where he said the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, the tree of good and, knowledge of good and evil, that God sent all this mess, that, well, the choice that we made, he, C.S. Lewis says that tree had to be there. Because if it is not there, there is no love, essentially. There's no choice. You are an automaton. God doesn't want that. So you might be thinking, okay, if that's true, if there's free will, that's why, and one of the reasons why evil may still exist on the earth, then why does God put up with all of the evil throughout all of the generations? That's something I think about a lot too. His tolerance for it seems to be far, far greater than my own, and probably yours as well. Well, Plantinga would go on to say, God does this because on the whole, it's for the best. If not, at least for the better. He deems the cost of evil to be worth the benefit of knowing his love and him loving you. And I would add the, the benefit of to grow in God's love. So this is how Christians have always man- managed to hold that God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil exists. Now there's a diagram I'll show you that I, th- I always get a lot of this makes sense to me, that on one, there's a line going up that represents the sovereignty of God, or the goodness of God, the mercy of God, right? Underneath is human understanding. That line above that, we don't understand how those things, how they connect. We can't make sense of it fully. That's why it's always going to be a question on this side of heaven, that there is suffering and evil, and there's the goodness and sovereignty of God, and these things somehow work together. Somehow they, are, they coexist, and they make sense to God. They don't make sense to us. There's going to be a mystery to this conversation until we get to the other side. It's above our understanding of how these things connect. Now, another question that came up is, if God is good, then why is there death? I'm telling you, get comfortable, y'all. Take some notes. (laughs) Why do we die? Well, the Bible tells us that we inherit death as a result of our sinful nature. Romans 8.38 says that the wages of sin is death. That's the reward of sin. What we earn from sin is death. So all people, whether you believe in God or not, you will die. Sorry to bust your bubble. Sorry to ruin your day. But that's just a reality. Death, taxes, Benjamin Franklin, that whole bit. So it, we inherit death because of sin. We inherit a rebellious nature against God. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for mortals to die once. That's also a good argument against karma. We don't continue living on. We did die one time. It's important to make this distinction because death is not a result of natural evil or supernatural evil. It's really a result of moral evil caused by sin. So natural, natural, um, natural evil is things like tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, things that were not in the original design plan that God did not create. It's a result of sin on the earth. Supernatural evil clearly is things like the devil, demons, possession, oppression, temptation, 
Um, hearing those voices that tell you you're not good enough, you're never gonna make it, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're worthless. It's always accusations. Those don't come from God. Always accusations against you. Don't believe those. They're all lies. That's all he does is lie. Someone say amen. That's who Satan is. Um, deception, hitting in your weaknesses, hitting you in your prejudices, trying to twist. I mean, he's very good at it. That's supernatural evil. Now, here's some, here's some really good news. Jesus is not intimidated by natural or supernatural or even moral evil at all. When Jesus addresses natural evil, he calms the storms on the sea, doesn't he? He has mastery over the natural forces of the earth. With a, with a word, he makes it stop. He has mastery over supernatural evil, casting out demons, resisting temptation from the devil himself. Jesus confronted moral evil when going to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's a general overview about evil. There's natural, supernatural, and moral evil, all caused by sin and or the devil in a short answer. So I'm gonna make three points. The first is that suffering happens. I remember, now when I was in the 80s, I collected a lot of comic books from the 70s, and so I would see, because I'm, I'm, I'm only a 79 model, so I, don't, I didn't grow up in the 70s, I'm just born in the 79. Now, there are these bumper stickers that would see these comic books, and the bumper sticker would say, manure happens. Except it didn't say manure, okay? So let's just get this out of the way that suffering happens. It is real. It, it happens. Manure happens. Uh, hey, it, we're up to our ears in it sometimes, aren't we? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's inconvenient. It's worthless. And unfortunately, it's plentiful, okay? So it happens in life. And when we face the hardships of life, sometimes we want God just to wave a magic wand, we want magic out of God and for him to fix it. But rarely in church history or even human history do we see God always sparing people from suffering. Sometimes he does, but not always. To tell that to the Christians in Rome who are fed to lions or created into human torches or all sorts of things. Sometimes you have to go through hard periods of life, hard periods of suffering. But here's the absolute truthfulness of Christianity lies in the fact that it doesn't necessarily provide a supernatural magic to the problems of our lives, but it does perhaps point to a supernatural use for those things. Or, well, I'll get to this, a purpose. A truth, the truth is that suffering can only have ultimate meaning in relationship with God. Apart from God, it doesn't make sense at all. It's just, it's just unjust and meaningless and cruel. But let me talk about this purpose idea, because you have to be really careful with this. Because on one hand, you've been to funerals, and I've too, some very well-meaning people will say to somebody, it happened for a reason, right? And you mean well, but what you're saying to them is, God meant for that to happen to you, right? Do you really believe that? You know, when you tie a theological bow around somebody's problem or their pain or suffering, uh, don't say that in the moment. It doesn't really, it doesn't help. I get it, it's coming from a good place. But on the other hand, though, just because we can't think of a reason for why it may have happened doesn't mean there's not one. 
You just don't know what it is. And I don't either. So that's actually blind faith of a high order to say that we can't think of any answers to suffering, therefore there can't be any. That doesn't make sense. No, there's probably a reason deep down, but we just don't know what it is. Maybe one day you'll find out. Now the Bible is full of suffering and sorrow and real human stories, real people who have gone through evil and pain and difficulty, and that's why it makes it so believable, doesn't it? It's so authentic and real. It's because it's raw humanity. And the ultimate example of that is that Christians worship a Jewish rabbi who was crucified and suffered on a cross and was then resurrected and ascended into heaven. The only, the only markings of a sinful world that exist in heaven, is said, is, this, is the holes that are in his wrists and in his feet. He is the ultimate example of what you would expect a good God to do in response to the manure of life. To walk as we have walked and be a perfect sacrifice in the middle of our mess. So he identifies with our suffering. He is with us in it. He might might not take it away. He might not change it, but he might change you in it. He might not make it go away, but he will sustain you in the midst of it. So he identifies with us. For example, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2.14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So Jesus, God became flesh, incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. He bled, he had blood in his body. He, is a, he was a real human being. This identifying with us in our humanity, he's perfectly God and perfectly man. Now, I know there's a lot of believers in the room, but I always like to think of people who are, you have no understanding of Christianity whatsoever. Like, you don't know what you believe. Uh, You're just happy to be here, and we're happy to have you here. I like to think of those people, because you could hear stuff like this, like, Jesus identifies with me and my suffering. Okay, what does that even mean? Like, like, like what what difference does that make to my life, right? It sounds like a lot of metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. Like, how in the world can I experience uh, him identifying with my humanity, Okay, yeah, that sounds good. Think of it this way. You know, he was real flesh and blood human being. I had a friend at my previous church when he and his wife were dating in the 1960s, and his wife was in a horrible car crash. And, well, they both were, but she got severely injured, and the ambulance came and picked her up, and he rode with her, and he held her hand in the ambulance, and they're rushing to the hospital, and she's losing tremendous amounts of blood right there in the ambulance, he told me. A, a tr- crazy story. I think she cut an artery. And there it is, and he's like, I'm going to lose my fiance right in front of my very eyes. And she's bleeding out in front of him. And, they're, and as they're trying to stop their bleeding, they're hooking up an, an IV to her arm, and they're putting new blood into her body. And he said she was turning gray, and the color was draining from her face. And he said, as soon as that new blood came into her arm, and they stopped the bleeding, and they cauterized the wound, I saw color return to her, li- her body. And I saw life return to her body. Without that blood, she would have died, he said. And now he's a huge proponent of the Red Cross. And he serves them, and he goes, the blood drives, it's great. It's like, and he tells that story. Because without the blood, she would have died. 
So when Jesus identifies with our flesh and blood nature, without his blood shed on your behalf, you die. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. And Jesus does not want any person to die in their sins. He wants everyone to ascend beyond that, to be resurrected beyond that. But the only way is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb and to know that his blood has been shed for you, to receive that gift for yourself. Physical blood, yes, helps you. He's talking about spiritual blood, if you will, new life of the Holy Spirit. Without him identifying with you in your suffering, being fully human, you do not know the potential for new life. So not only does he identify in our suffering, he also heals our suffering. I have known many people in this life, like you, Christian people, who have suffered horribly. And yet, they continue to walk with God. And some of those are some of the most heroic, most beautiful souls I've ever known. And you know those people too. And this probably might be you today, probably. And you're holding these two things in, in tension with each other, right? That God is good and he's with us and he loves me, he forgives me, and I'm, I'm going to be resurrected one day, and yet my life is a complete disaster. <laughs> and yet, nothing seems to be going right sometimes. And I can't make sense of those two things. Here's what I've learned about Jesus. is that Yeah, I know people that didn't get healed in this life, but then when they died, I'm certain when they crossed that veil, they were healed. See, with Jesus, either you're healed today or you're healed later. Either with him, there's healing or there's healing. Either there's healing or there's healing. Healing now or healing on the other side. Either way, that's always been who he has always been and who he will always be. Now, in John chapter 9, there's a story of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And sometimes pastors may squirm over this passage because it can sound like God caused this guy to get blind so that the power of God could be seen in his life. But as we read it, that's not what Jesus is saying. If we know that God is love, God is good, he's not going to cause this. Okay, let's, just, let's back up. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he walked along, he saw a man. Okay, that's a great point right there. Jesus sees this guy in his suffering. He sees him. He doesn't just cross the other side of the street, oh, just a blind guy asking for money. Someone else take care of him, right? Yeah, he can deal with his own problem. No, he sees him. He sees him and he goes toward this man, blind from birth. In verse two, his disciples ask a rather callous question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. Basically, whose fault is it, Jesus? We want cause. We want blame. Whose fault? If it's his parents' fault or it's his fault, somebody's got to be blamed, right? That's why they're suffering and pain, Right? It's because of our inability. It's because, you know. See, they want cause. But then look at what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Jesus' answer here does not speak to the cause for his ailment. He speaks to his purpose, right? Ultimately, we can give a general answer. Yeah, it's the... Blindness could be the result of sin in the world, just like a lot of us have physical issues or ailments. But he doesn't, he doesn't, but he doesn't even go there. He doesn't even answer the question. He speaks to the purpose of it. He, he says, essentially, 
God intends to display some of his glory through his blindness. And in that case, it happened to be healing. In other cases, with many people's lives, it might not be healing. Like I said, you know people who have been healed. I do too. I know other people that I wish would be healed, but they haven't, at least not yet. But there's nothing that says that it has to be healing. For this individual with his sight being restored, which he does, he spits in mud, rubs it on his eyes, and the man can see again. It doesn't always have to be healing. But either he will heal you or he will sustain you. It's one or the other. But either way, God does not forget you and your suffering and your pain or the evil that goes around in your life. For example, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he wrote about this more than once. He cries out to God for, him, for God to take away what he called the thorn in my flesh. Now, we're not really quite sure what Paul's talking about. Some people think it was an eye issue. could have been a sexual temptation he couldn't shake. It could have been a physical problem he had. We, we really don't know. But it was bad because he wrote about it more than once. And he says in 2 Corinthians, God, I begged you. This is the Apostle Paul. Take, away, take this away from me. And what does he say is the response? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He quotes Jesus, in, which says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So he's saying, at least in Paul's situation, I'll sustain you. My grace is enough to get you through what you're dealing with. And in your weaknesses, I will show my strength. Because sometimes God has to anoint the areas of our lives that we feel the weakest, Right? Sometimes God may put you in front of the thing that you're the most scared of to help you grow. Um, And he's saying to Paul, I will put my power on display. I'm not going to heal you of that, but I will sustain you in the middle of it. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is kneeling and he is praying and he feels the weight of the sin of the world coming upon his shoulders. He is so grieved in his spirit that he is praying with such fervency that he is sweating drops of blood. And in his full humanity of that moment, he's fully God and fully man, but in his full humanity of that moment, he prays a prayer I would have prayed in that moment. Father, if you're willing, take this cup of suffering away from me. And yet here's, here's the perfectly God part of that prayer. Yet I want your will, Father, and not mine. Because Jesus knew what was at stake. He knew he had to go all the way. Because that was always been the plan. He suffered on a level unimaginable, and yet he did not sin. You know, friends, there's a lot of times I look at this world, and you do too, and I wonder what God sees I would love to see what he sees because I feel like an ant on the ground and I see just a little bit. It doesn't discredit our our experiences which are very real and very valid and our pain is very real and very valid. But I wish I could have the bigger perspective to see what he sees. What What if God sees more overcoming than the suffering? What if God sees more good in the world than the evil? What if he sees more resurrection than death? What if God sees more good than we do? He has to. Because if he sees what we see, we, sometimes it doesn't make any sense to us at all. Maybe the problem is not in, in maybe the problem is what we choose to focus on sometimes. For example, there's evil, sure. There's suffering, absolutely. 
But why is there joy? Why are things as good as they are? Why is nature still as beautiful as it is on a fallen world? Why is there good things like falling in love and babies and $5 trays at cookout? I mean, why are all these great things in the world? Maybe it's in what you're looking at. Not to discredit the pain that we're dealing with, absolutely. Don't look at the suffering only, but look at the cross. The place where death literally died. Where torment was tormented, where damnation was damned, and mortality became immortality. You know, when things go wrong, you can lose your peace and you think that God is punishing you, right? Or you, can, you, you may think that God doesn't care. Look at the cross. It's not a symbol of, of con- condemnation. It's a symbol of love and freedom. The cross is the ultimate act of suffering in the midst of love in the midst of our suffering. It's the ultimate reminder that he took all the punishment on himself for you. Because with him, there's either healing or there's healing. There's a person in history who knew her fair share of suffering. Helen Keller, amazing human being, amazing Christian person as well. And this quote came up to me this week and it really stuck out to me. She said, all the world is full of suffering. It is also full of overcoming. Friends, this isn't just a naive, pie-in-the-sky sort of pipe dream. That Jesus said that we can become more than conquerors based on what he has done for us on our behalf. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is, you are more than a conqueror this morning? Pray to have faith. Pray that he'll give you faith to believe that. That there is victory because of what he has done and accomplished for you and through the cross. I would add that Yes, suffering absolutely is a constant reminder in our everyday lives. But that God sees far, far, far more overcoming than we can possibly imagine. And he wants you to be an overcomer. He wants you to receive the gift of new life by faith. To receive the gift of the Holy Spirit into your heart and your life. To be made new from the inside out. He wants that for you. He wants you to be a new creation in Christ. Behold, If anyone is in Christ, the old things have passed away, the new has come. Jesus proclaimed from the throne, the end of the the Bible, the end of Revelation. He said, behold, I'm making all things new. What does he mean by that? He wants to begin with you. He wants to begin with me. He wants eternal life to begin, not in the moment you die, physically, but he wants eternal life to happen today, now. Tomorrow's not promised, right? It's not. He wants us to come to him by faith today. And know that when we go through the trials of life, he is standing with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that through the cross, through your blood shed for us, there is forgiveness of sins, there is new life, there is resurrection. And God, through the mystery and the wonder that you are with us in our trials, in our suffering, in our pain, in our mourning, in, yes, in our grieving, you stand with your people. 
because that is what you would expect perfect love to do. Thank you that you're with us. You provided a way for us. And that with you, it only gets better. Bless those friends here and now this morning, those watching at home who are going through some serious stuff that only you know about. Bless them, heal them. May they know of your abiding presence of your Holy Spirit with them now. That you will never leave them or forsake them. That nothing will separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Death can't, hell can't, heaven can't, the angels can't, the demons can't. God, you're undefeated. And you have made a way where there seemed to be no way. Thanks be to you, O God, that you're with us in the fire. In Christ's name we pray.